The topic for this evening is called The Highest Form of Worship. It's the tenth meeting that we're having together. I'm again going to say that I'm happy you're here. And there's some new faces, and, and I welcome all the new faces. Glad that you're here. Um, turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And if you have a difficulty finding your place in the Bible, it's page 844 if you have one of these Bibles that we're giving out to you. Malachi chapter 3. And we're going to just take a moment for a little review. Um, the outer court, we've been studying, by the way, those of you who are new, we've been studying uh, the plan of salvation through the sanctuary. We've come to un- understand that God instituted this sanctuary model here on earth. It's a, it's a patterned after the sanctuary that is in heaven. And God instituted that sanctuary for the purpose of solving the sin problem. And we've been going through this thing back and forth and we've reviewed and reviewed and we just don't want to lose any sight or sight of any part of it at all. And so again, just a little review tonight. The outer court, the outer court goes up to here. This, this part here and everything around the sanctuary, that's called the outer court. And this is where we find salvation because here at the altar of sacrifice representing the cross of Calvary, a man may come, confess his sins on the Lamb of God and find himself justified, pardoned, forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ right there. And so that represents the work of Jesus on the earth right there in the outer court. And by the way, if you notice around the whole sanctuary is a fence made up of white linen. I really don't know how tall this linen was. Um, but I do know this, and to me, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. When a man left the, the tents out here, and he came with his lamb to the sanctuary, entering through the door, when he went through the door, he was entering into Christ. That's what it means. That's what it is. The whole of the sanctuary represents Christ, all of it. And when a man walked through the door, the people, the onlookers, could see him go until he walked in through that gate, and then he would disappear behind white representing the righteousness, the purity, the innocence, of, the innocence of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, listen. We need to find our way to Jesus. Jesus said himself, If any man will come to me, I will in no wise cast him out. And when we come to him, he receives us, and he receives us in himself. And then when God looks down, what does he see? He sees his Son. And we ought to be able to see the same thing, right? If you come to Jesus... Now that I look at you, I ought to be able to see Jesus. Well then, we move into the holy place of the sanctuary, which represents heaven, by the way. And so we enter this by faith, because we can't get into heaven. And the holy place of the sanctuary represents sanctification. That's where we will find sanctification. We can go to the altar, excuse me, the table of showbread, and there it represents Jesus as the bread of life, represents the Word of God, and it's trying to teach us to read the Bible every day. Study your Bibles, and through it, you will find sanctification. That's what the Bible says, right? Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. And we could go to the altar of incense, and there our prayers rise with the incense of Christ's righteousness, made acceptable to God by His righteousness, because our prayers would not be acceptable otherwise. And on the other wall, this would be the south wall. I think, yeah, the south wall. We find the candelabra or the the um, menorah. Well, that's another word. See, I'm learning stuff. 
Yeah, the candlestick, that's what it is. It represents the seven churches and the number seven symbolic, of course, represents all the, the churches of Jesus Christ. Christianity from the time it began to the time it ends. And of course, we are the light of this world. And if we will exercise, and that's what I always come back to. To me, this is where Christ has us exercise. We come here, we find salvation. Over here, we find baptism. And then he gives us three exercises to do. To read our Bibles, to pray, and to share. And if we will read our Bibles and pray and share, then we will grow to become stronger and stronger Christians. And we will grow to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Well, after that, and we've been going now into the most holy place, we cross this this curtain over here into the most holy place of the sanctuary. And this is what we've been studying lately. And we've seen, and I'm sorry for those of you who haven't been here, but when we cross that, that curtain right there, we had a date set on that last night, and it was 1844. At 1844, Jesus in heaven crossed from the holy place to the most holy place of the sanctuary, and he did that for a purpose. Do you know why he did that? Well, it's to cleanse the sanctuary. That's what we learned yesterday. To cleanse the sanctuary of his people's sins. And so, during that time, when Jesus is in the most holy place of the sanctuary, it's a time of investigation, it's a time of judgment, it's a time when we are to search our hearts against the great standard of God, which is the Ten Commandments. And so the Hebrews call that the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. It's this final phase of atonement that in which God attempts by the work of Jesus Christ in the sanctuary to purify his people from all their sins. This is the day in which we live. This is the, Im- the impact I would hope that this kind of preaching has on all of our hearts. We need to realize the day in which we live. We need to realize what God is trying to do. His intentions for his people are more than just forgiving us at the cross of Calvary and sanctifying us uh, little by little through the word and through prayer and through sharing. It is also time for the blotting out of sins so that Jesus can come, so that Jesus can cleanse the sanctuary, close the door, and come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I had you turn to Malachi chapter 3. Here we are, Malachi chapter 3. And reading it, uh, just a cursory reading of it, you would think that it's talking about the first coming of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus. It's talking about neither. It's talking about Jesus transferring from the holy place of the sanctuary into the most holy place of the sanctuary. Verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come. Notice where he comes now. To his temple. And we're talking about the temple in heaven. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Jesus transfers in 1844 from the holy place to the most holy place of the sanctuary. He's come to his temple to do a specific work. And you can tell by the next verses that the work is really, really important. As a matter of fact, the work is scary. And the angel is asking, the whoever is writing this, is asking who shall be able to stand. Verse 2. Welcome. We're glad you're here, Trisha. We've missed you for a few days. Verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? Do you see the importance that God is putting 
on this move that Jesus made from the holy place to the most holy place, who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He is like a fuller's soap. Now remember now, he's cleansing the sanctuary. And so he portrays himself as a fuller. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. That they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, which represents the church today, be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old as in former years. So in A.D. 31, Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. In A.D. 31, Jesus resurrected and then ascended back to heaven and entered to minister into the holy place of the sanctuary. And then we know that in 1844, he crossed into the most holy place of the sanctuary. Jesus entered there into the final phase of these of his atonement, and really the cry that he cries out to his people is, prepare to meet thy God. That's the cry we should be hearing to our hearts this evening. But friends, listen, it's hard to prepare for something unless we know what is required. You know, you can't just decide to become an elite commando if you don't know what is required of an elite commando. If you don't know what to train, you won't know how to train if you don't know what the standard is and what the requirements are, if they're not written down, you just can't know. And I just got a wonderful signal. We haven't prayed. I'm going to ask you to pray. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, forgive me for just jumping ahead always in my own strength sometime. Thank you for the opportunity now that we have to study these things. We can tell already by what we've read how important Some things are especially important to you and how important they ought to be to us. And so, Father, this evening we bow before you asking you in the name of Jesus to make this important to us. Impact our hearts with the present truth of this matter. And thank you for being our God and sending thy Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And so God wants us to go to heaven. And he doesn't just say, if you want to go to heaven, be good. Now, we've heard that before, right? I don't know where you grew up, but I grew up in a Roman Catholic, French-Canadian home, and my mother used to say all the time, if you want to go to heaven, you'd better be good. (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) If you want to go to heaven, you'd better be good. Because the Bible says, there shall in no wise enter into heaven anything that defile it. But being good is hard to define. Well, how good is good? And how do you measure good? You know, what's the standard of good? And so, we find out in the most holy place of the sanctuary what the standard of good is. If you go with me to Exodus chapter 25, we're going to look at verse 8. Now, we've been looking at verse 8 in Exodus chapter 25 over and over and over again. It's the very beginning. It's at the place where the sanctuary is first mentioned by God. God approaches His people and He says to them, let them make me a sanctuary. That's what it says in Exodus 25. We're looking at verse 8. That's the first mention of the sanctuary. I think I haven't really studied that out fully, but as far as I remember, that's what it is. We're in Exodus 25, verse 28. God Himself speaking, Jesus Himself speaking, He says, let them make me a sanctuary. What for? That I may dwell among them. 
So this is the first idea of the sanctuary. But I want you to notice that immediately after saying, let them make me a sanctuary, he goes right to the heart of the sanctuary, which of course is the mercy seat, and which is the Ark of the Testament, and where the law is. And so right after verse 8, let's look at verse uh, 10. And they shall make an Ark of Shittim wood, that's acacia wood, Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half shall be the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. Now look at verse 16. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And so he says, let them make me a sanctuary. He goes straight to the heart of the sanctuary and he says, I want the Ark of the Testament right there. That's where I want it. Now, what is the Ark of the Testament anyway? Well, it's called by a different name in Deuteronomy chapter 10, but we want to go there. Now you already know probably in your mind, you're telling me without my hearing it, what the Ark of the Testimony is. But we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, then 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 10, 1 and 2, 4 and 5. This is page 168 in your Bible. At that time, the Lord said unto me, Hew the two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto me into the mount, and make thee an ark of wood. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first table, which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. And so, just just so you can know the story, God had written... The Ten Commandments on two tables of stone. And Moses came down off the mountain and he found the people of Israel dancing naked around a golden calf. And Moses took the tables of stone and he broke them in in disgust for what the people were doing. Because symbolically they had, well they hadn't broken the law symbolically. They had actually broken the law in reality. But Moses broke the tables of stone because the law had been broken. That's where the symbol is. It's in that. So, after a while, God called them back up the mountain and he's telling them to make two more tables of stone and come up back up the mountain and God is going to write something there. Verse, uh, what did I say, 4 and 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark, God already wrote on there, which I had made, and there they be as the Lord commanded me. And the children of Israel took their journey from Beeroth of the children of Jechan to to Mazera. There Aaron died. Am I reading the right thing? I'm not reading the right thing. Let me read verse 5. I did read verse... Let me read verse 4. And he wrote on the tables according to the first writing the Ten Commandments. That's what I wanted to read. Which the Lord spake unto you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. And I turned myself and I came back down off the mountain and put the tables in the ark which I had made. And there they are, as the Lord commanded me. That makes more sense. Doesn't it? It does. (laughs) And so we find here a moving away from the shadow towards the reality in heaven. And so in heaven, when you go to the book of Revelation, you find out that often the prophet is brought into heaven into the sanctuary and there he sees the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, and it's the Ten Commandments. It's there in heaven. The Ten Commandments are there. These are the standards by which we can live. And if we live by these standards, 
we can live life successfully. And let me tell you, friends, there's no other way to live life successfully. I know. It's the truth. And it's amazing to me that we live in the world where the Ten Commandments, well, they're not even thought of. They're not rejected. They're totally neglected. People don't even think about these things anymore. The world is becoming less and less and less religious. And those who are religious would like to to uh, pull away from the law of God because, hey, the law in their mind is restrictive. And who wants to be restricted? We'd like to do what we want to do, right? Ah, but God says you can't live successfully that way. You just can't live successfully that way. And I would like to encourage you to believe this, let me tell you, especially if you're young. Well, especially if you're alive. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, I started my Christian walk when I was 25 years old. What a blessing that is. If I had waited until I was 75 years old, what would I have missed out on? I tell you, I don't know if I... I guess I've told you some stories. I'm sorry for those of you who who haven't come earlier. I've told some stories in my life. But all of these things that I've experienced, I would not have experienced. I can go back home to where I come from, to my huge family, and they're still doing what I used to be doing way back then, 40 years ago. Still just working, living in a house, drinking and partying, and and nothing's ever changed. And I don't know what they think, because they won't tell me. But it's amazing to me if they study my life, what I've done and what I've been, what the Lord has done for me. Because really, I haven't done anything. God is so good. You want to live life successfully, live by that standard. The standard of the law of God. It was sent to purify to himself a people. But not only that, it gives you success in life. It really, really does. Okay. But what do people do with rules in the world? Well, there's two things you can do with rules in the world, right? You can obey the rules or you can break the rules. That's the two things that you can do. Do you know what obedience is? Do you know the title for this lesson tonight? It is the highest form of worship. And it's amazing to me that there are people in the world who would like to worship God, but leave obedience out of it. As a matter of fact, and this is funny, and I, I don't even know if I should say it. <laughs> But I've been asked to go to Poland. I'm going to Poland after we finish this meeting in less than two weeks. I'll be going to Poland. And they've asked me to preach on the Ten Commandments, five sermons at an ASI meeting there. And they've asked me not to speak about obedience. Now, what in the world? I've got to speak about the Ten Commandments and I dare not speak about obedience because obedience is not acceptable there in Poland. Huh. What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, uh, several times I've already said to them, I said, well, maybe I really shouldn't come because I'm not sure I'm the guy you really want. You know, how do I, how am I going to speak about the Ten Commandments and not speak about obedience? It's a strange thing. It really, really is. I had a little friend. When I, when I was growing up, there was a boy living across the, across the, uh, the street from us. His name was Alfred. We'd call him Freddy. And anyway, when he was 10 or 12 years old, he used to delight when his parents would leave the house and go to town, go shopping or something. He would clean the whole house up. And what a good boy he was, you know, for doing that. When the parents would come home and they, they could pat him on the back and say, what a good boy he was because he would, he, he just delighted in doing that sort of stuff. But his parents also knew something else besides. If you were to talk to the parents about how good their little boy was because he would clean the whole house when they were gone to town, they would say, yeah, yeah, he'll clean the whole house up when he wants to do it. But if we ask him to do it, he would never do it. Then he would fight you tooth and nail. So in the end, did he actually really obey their, his parents? 
No, that wasn't obedience at all. The whole motive was wrong. What he did was a good thing, but he did it for himself on his time so he could re- receive recognition. And when his parents wanted some obedience from him and asked him to do something, then he wouldn't do it. That wasn't obedience at all. If you go to John chapter 14, we're looking at verse 15. In John chapter 14, this is page 955. And you probably know where I'm going. You know this one by heart. There's no doubt. John chapter 14. And we're looking at verse 15, page 955. Jesus is speaking very, very simply. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Keep my commandments. That's what he said. Well, what do you, how do you think of people who don't obey him? Do they love him? No, they don't love him. And you can belong to religion if you want to. You can belong to the church if you want to. You can, you can have all the ceremonies and all the rituals, but the bottom line is just this. If you will not obey Jesus Christ, you do not love him. As a matter of fact, John, in uh, speaking in 1st John, if you'll turn there, 1st John chapter 2, page 1082, he, he spells it out in very stark words, in very plain language, and I love it. I, I really, really, really appreciate it when the Bible speaks in plain language. It's not all that way, you understand. There's some things we have to search out and hard to understand, but the words we're about to read are not hard to understand. Let me tell you that. We're in 1st John chapter 2. We're looking at verses 3 to 5 in 1st John chapter 2. Watch what is said here. Take it to heart. Well, it's 1st John chapter 2. (laughs) And go to verses 3 to 5. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. And friends, this is the true test of Christianity. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say here this evening that we can be saved by keeping the commandments. This is absolute nonsense. This is not true. We cannot be saved by keeping the commandments. But I tell you what, if you have found salvation, if you have fallen in love with Jesus Christ, you will keep the commandments. Keeping the commandments is the result of falling in love with God. Keeping the commandments is the result of finding salvation. And so the people who find salvation keep the commandments. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation this week with one of the lifestyle guests. He's gone already. And uh, I guess he wouldn't mind my saying so. He... He's a Mormon. He was among us uh, this week. And he came to visit with me at the office. We had a wonderful time. He's a wonderful individual. We had a great talk. But we began talking about these things. He wanted to know about, you know, keeping the commandments and all of this stuff and salvation. And it's amazing to me. Because when I said, no, no, we cannot keep the commandments to be saved. But we do keep the commandments if we are saved. And to him it was kind of almost, you could see it in his face. It was like, You know, that makes real sense. (laughs) It does make real sense. We don't have any power before we have salvation. And so we come to Jesus Christ. We give Him our hearts. He gives us His grace. He gives us His power. And with His power, we can live as Christians, right? But there are many people trying to live their lives as Christians in order to find salvation. They can't do it. They can't do it because they have no power. We are saved by grace. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 8 to 10. This is page 1038 in Ephesians chapter 2, 1038. And 
very, very evangelistic verses that we're going to read here. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 8. For by grace are you saved. No other way. By the way, we're not saved by faith either. Faith doesn't save anyone. It's grace that saves us. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith lays hold upon what God can do and God can save us through His grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You can't save yourselves. It is a gift from God. What a blessing that is. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so we can't do anything to save ourselves. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship. God works in us, created in Christ Jesus unto God, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So God wants to do, wants us to do good things. He really does. But we can't do it until God is in us. So we're saved. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved to do. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved to work. Now there's a lot of people, of course, and I've heard it many times before, who would like to point to the book of Romans and say, yeah, but go to the book of Romans. It tells there that we're not saved by work, but we're we're saved by faith and works have nothing to do with it. And so, you know, but turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, uh, page 999 in Romans chapter 1. I want you to see a nice little sandwich. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 5. And by the way, if you ever want, you know how, the, how Paul, in every book that he writes, he has an introduction to the book. You want to study the plan of salvation, you can study the plan of salvation in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The whole plan of salvation is right there. It's amazing how that Paul was able to concentrate so much in so few words. And the whole plan of salvation is right there. But I wanted you to see verse 5, because this is the book of Romans where we are taught to live by faith and not by works. And some people would like to say, see, works are not important. Watch what verse 5 says. By whom we have, that is by Christ, we have received grace, that's love and power and apostleship. Watch for, what, watch what it's for now. For obedience to the faith, that is for the obedience of faith among all nations for his name. And so right in the introduction of the book of Romans, Paul says, we receive grace for the obedience of faith. Well, go to the last page of the book of Romans. This is chapter 16. And he says the very same thing. He sandwiches the whole book of Romans between those two statements. Romans chapter 16. And we're going to look at verse... You know, I I was going to read from all the way from verse 24 to 26. But I think if we read just verse 26, we'll get the picture. But now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the everlasting God, made known unto all nations. What for? For the obedience of faith. So everything that's in the book of Romans has this one purpose, that we have power from God for the obedience of faith. That's what God wants. If you love me, keep my commandments. So now, friends, if we don't obey, what are we doing? We're sinning. <laughs> it's just that simple. In First John chapter 3, verse 4, go to First John 3, verse 4, and I'm using, using as usual, a lot of, a lot of Bible verses. First John chapter 3, verse 4. This is page 1083. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin 
is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. Disobedience is sin. In the book of James, just a few pages before that, page 1074, we find another description, another definition for sin in James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So if you know to do the right thing, and you won't do the right thing, you're sinning. And Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, very simply, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so, if you're doing something you don't believe in, you're sinning. If you're doing something that God said not to do, then you are not walking in faith and you're walking in sin. So, there you are. Sin has been the problem from the beginning. Sin is the enemy. This is what Jesus has come to destroy, is sin. And that's why we study the plan of salvation as it is in the sanctuary model. That was given to us to solve the sin problem. In the end, when we get into the most holy place of the sanctuary, sin is destroyed. And sin is destroyed in the lives of all of his people. And there will be sin no more. Affliction shall not rise the second time. All of these things we've read this week as, as verses. It's a tremendous blessing. Go to, to um, 1 John chapter 3. We're not far away. Page 1083. Page 1083, 1 John chapter 3, we're looking at verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, we're looking at verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. Wow. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And it is the devil that's brought sin into existence and into our lives in this world. And God has come. Jesus has come down. And his purpose is to destroy the works of the devil. Sin. Oh, I want it done in my life, don't you? Uh, what a blessing. What would it be like to live without sin? What would it be like to live without temptation? What it would, would it be like to be not to be harassed by devils and by the world with all its crazy attractions? It's amazing. It would be so peaceful. Now, some people would think, well, it would be so boring. <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't be boring. Do you know that you would have health? That you would have strength? That you would succeed in that which you're doing? That you would have everything that, you know, that we're missing out of, actually, because, because of sin. We've been destroyed and we don't even know it. We're all damaged and we don't even know it. Yeah, and all of that would be repaired. What a blessing. Well, I have a question for you. How many of the Ten Commandments should we keep? All of them. Everybody knows the answer. Right. Sure. Illustration. What if a bride... I think we have a picture of a bride coming up here. And I like weddings. We've been... Um, there's been quite a few weddings this summer. I haven't been to all the weddings, of course, that have been happening. But it's always such a blessing. We... Uh, we were looking at a bunch of wedding pictures the other day, and the photographer was excellent. He did a fantastic job, and he caught the moment. And you know, when two young people get married and they're looking at each other, and it's, it's the wedding day. You, you just can you just there, there's something special about that. Well, what if a bride would come to her brand new husband on the day of the wedding and say, "I love you so much." You know, they say that on that day. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll do anything for you. I've turned my back on all my boyfriends. But but would it be okay if I just slept with John once a month? What do you think the boy the, the husband would say? No. No. You don't love me. But it's only one. No. You see, that's how, that's just doesn't work that way. We can understand that, can't we? It just doesn't work that way. If you're keeping yourself another just for once in a while, then obviously I don't have your whole heart and there's no love there. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, page 1073. And we're looking at verse 10 in James chapter 2. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. How does that work? Well, we've just illustrated it by this wedding uh, illustration. Yeah? Either you love me or you don't love me. And you can keep all of the commandments and break one. So what are you doing? You're keeping for yourself just uh, an, another God. God says... You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, but just one little idol. Have you got an idol in your life? Oh, it's possible. A lot of people have idols in their life. Don't you think? Sure, sure. Does that mean that we will never fail? Does that mean that we will never fall if we become Christians? Oh, no, no. But it does mean that if we've given our hearts to the Lord, we're going to do the best that we can possibly do to honor Him and to... Praise Him and to do the thing that He wants us to do. You know, I've come to the conclusion, and I know this this topic has been batted around forever by many people, but I've come to the conclusion that this idea of perfection is being perfectly intentioned. A person who is perfectly intentioned is as perfect as he can get because you can have you cannot have perfect behavior. Did you know that? Have you ever tried to behave perfectly? In what aspect? Do you do so well that you can do it as well as God can do it? Well, you can't. There is no aspect of life where you can do it as well as God can do it. Therefore, you come short of the glory of God. And my Bible says, Romans 3.23, that sin is... All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, that's because we're damaged. That's because we're broken. And we can try to do everything as perfectly. As a matter of fact, we ought to try to do everything as perfectly as we can. That's what it, that's what perfection is. It's to be perfectly intentioned. And I don't mean to pretend to be perfectly intentioned now. When you're perfectly intentioned, you do all that you can to the best of your ability. God accepts that and He makes up for our deficiencies. Do you know you will have deficiencies? Oh, yes, just look in the mirror. <laughs> you want to see some deficiencies. Yeah, that's how it is. We're human and we're damaged and we're broken. And God says, I want you. I love you. Do your best. I'll make up for the deficiencies. And there's an illustration of this in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's a whole book. The whole book is the illustration. It's Philemon. Go to the book of Philemon. Now, I forgot to to put the page number... At 1060, go to the book of Philemon. This is just before the book of Hebrews. So we're in James. Just before James is Hebrews. Just before Hebrews is the book of Philemon. Now some of you may remember the story. Philemon was a wealthy individual who had slaves. And one of his slaves was by the name of Onesimus. 
and Onesimus happened to steal something from Philemon and then run away. Now in those days, if a slave stole something and ran away, he was dead. He was dead if he was caught. Now not necessarily caught, obviously. So Onesimus ran away and he ran to Rome. Well, in Rome he ran into the Apostle Paul and he heard the Apostle Paul speaking, preaching the gospel and that was a tremendous blessing to him. So he gave his heart to Jesus Christ and Onesimus was saved. Isn't that wonderful? Ah, but it left him with an awful problem because he now was a Christian and he had stolen. And he needed to meet, he needed to fix he needed to restore that which he had stolen, but he had been a slave and the penalty would have been instant death at that time. So the Apostle Paul, uh, representing God in the story here, decided that he would write Philemon. No, the Apostle Paul is not representing God in the story. He's representing Jesus in the story. And Philemon represents God if you look at it all symbolically, you see. So Paul decides that he's going to write Philemon a letter and he's going to send the letter by the hand of Onesimus. And so Paul writes the letter. Onesimus goes to Philemon. Very, very dangerous. He could be killed. Gives the man the letter. And the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 18. He says this in the letter. And you know, this book is worth reading. The psychology in this book is amazing. The way that the Apostle Paul approaches Philemon. And he almost backs him up against the wall and doesn't leave him any choice. <laughs> really. But verse seven, verse 18. He says, If he has wronged you or owes you anything, put it to my account. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Well, do you know that this is what Jesus says to his father? You and I want to please God. You and I want to obey the commandments. You and I want to do what is right in this world. And we want to honor God and we want to love Him. But we're not going to come up to the standard. We are too broken and we are too damaged. But Jesus says, if He has wronged you, talking to His Father now, have we wronged Him? Yeah. Oh, yes, we have. And if you say you haven't, the Bible we read just a little while ago, what it is you are. <laughs> Do we owe God anything? Oh, yes, we owe Him anything. I think Jesus spoke a parable to that end where there was a debtor who owed, you know, 10,000 talents and it was like a, a dozen lifetime of wages or something. There is no way. There is just no way we can meet the damage, that we can repair the damage, that we can restore that which we have damaged. There's just no way to do it. No way. You know, and I've often used this, this illustration, and maybe I've already used this in this series, I don't know. But what would you think of a man that approached the judge, he's on trial for murder, and he says to the judge, listen, I promise you, I will never kill another man again. What do you think? What would the judge say? Well, he'd say, you're not on trial for killing people you haven't killed yet. You're on, tri on trial for the people you've already killed in the past. It doesn't matter what you promise. You can go to God and promise Him you'll never sin again. It's pointless. You've already sinned, haven't you? Yes. We're already guilty and, we're, and, and the wages of sin is death. We're all lost. Hopelessly, helplessly lost. There's nothing we can do unless Jesus comes to our aid. And of course, that's what He did. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And that only begotten Son met the claims of the law. He lived a perfect life from the day he was born till the day he was meeting an atoning death on our behalf. 
And he went up to heaven. He presented to his father his perfect life on our behalf. He presented to his father his atoning death on our behalf. And God said, it is enough. Give them the gift of salvation. It's a gift. There's no way you can buy it because you've already sinned. Already sinned. And so receive it as a gift. And it doesn't matter what sin you've ever sinned, how bad you think you are, how miserable you even are today. It doesn't matter. God, has, Jesus has gone to the cross with your sin. Friends, we forfeited every blessing already by sinning. And like slaves, we have nothing with which to pay. Like slaves, we deserve to die. But Jesus says, put it on my account. If we genuinely do our best, trusting for the power that we need from Jesus Christ, if we are genuinely trying to obey Him, Jesus adds His perfect righteousness to our poor obedience and it's acceptable to God. Isn't that good news? I mean, is that really hard to live up to? God is not asking anything of us that we don't have. He's giving us all that He wants us to give to Him. We can't fail. It's amazing, but we can't. Unless we are spiritually lazy. Unless we cherish sin more than we cherish salvation. That's possible. And that's a a real tragedy. Now, not everyone thinks that that's a great gospel. By the way, many would like to go to heaven. They really would like to go to heaven. But they don't want to quit sinning either. And so consequently, they've invented all kinds of theologies to accommodate the sin in their lives. Yeah, something like uh, the law is nailed to the cross. Well, the law is nailed to the cross. Great! Then we don't have to keep it anymore and we can go to heaven. Is it true that the law is nailed to the cross? No. Turn with me. Don't know where I am here. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. That's uh, page 1046 in Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at some verses here that some people use to say that the law has been nailed to the cross. Colossians 2, verse 14 to 17, page 1046. 14 to 17. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in what you eat or in what you drink or in respect to holidays or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And so here we have the Apostle Paul. And you know, it's complicated language. (laughs) It really, really is complicated language. So here we have the Apostle Paul says, you know, Because it was nailed to the cross, something was nailed to the cross. We read it right there. The ordinances were nailed to the cross. He says because the ordinances were nailed to the cross, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat and what you drink and the holidays you keep and the Sabbath you keep and all this sort of stuff. And somebody will say, ha-ha, there it is, there it is. It says so, it says so. You don't have to be careful what you eat anymore. You don't have to be careful how you dress anymore. You don't have to be careful about which day you keep anymore. It says so right there. But friends, what they don't understand, of course, is that there is more than one law in the Bible. And there are civil laws, and there are health laws, and there are ceremonial laws, and there's the Ten Commandment laws. And which one is it that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here? Yeah. And here we find the shadow meets the reality. 
but most people don't understand it. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is page 1038 in Ephesians chapter 2. And we find another verse similar. Ephesians 2 verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, or to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace. And so here we have it again. Yeah, Jesus has done away with the commandments, the law of ordinances. And people don't stop to think, well, what in the world is he talking about? What law is he referring to? What is it? Well, if you'll go with me to Second Chronicles chapter 33. Second Chronicles chapter 33, we're looking at verse 8. Page 413. 2nd Chronicles, chapter 33. We're looking at verse 8. 413. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. Okay, now what is this saying here? God made a difference between the Ten Commandments. Well, I've got to read something else here. Okay, let's read Exodus 31.18. First of all, pay attention to the verse we've just read. Moses gave the law of ordinances. Let's go to Exodus 31.18, page 80. Exodus 31.18. I almost skipped this verse and I would have messed myself up Royally. Exodus 31, look at verse 18. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Now, the laws of ordinance, who wrote them? Moses did. The laws of the Ten Commandments, who wrote them? God did. That's right. And there's a difference, and God makes a difference between the two of them. Of course, the Ten Commandments were given before Sinai, they're eternal, and the ceremonial laws were given at Sinai and lost their power at the cross of Calvary. They were nailed to the cross. What is it that's nailed to the cross? Ceremonial laws. Are there many ceremonial laws in the Bible? There are all kinds of ceremonial laws in the Bible. Oh, we have to be wise in this thing. Let me tell you, there are some things that people would like to call a ceremonial law, which isn't a ceremonial law. When God said that we shouldn't eat meat with the blood in it, that wasn't a ceremony. That was a law of health. And that is maintained today as well as back then. It's still true that if it wasn't healthy back then, it can't possibly be healthy today. There's all kinds of things like that in the Bible. And the Ten Commandments were not ceremonial. The Ten Commandments were moral. And those things are still binding. Thank you today. Oh, what would I do without you? Yeah. Ah, friends, how is it with you? How do you relate to God's word? How do you relate to God's law? Are you willing to try to keep the commandments of God by the grace of God? Ah, friends, we need to be willing. We need to be wanting. We want to obey God. We want to love Him. Don't we? Yes. And besides that, he's going to make up all our deficiencies, isn't he? He is. Go forward with this thing.
Trust God with this thing. Trust God with your life. How many of you would like to indicate that you want to obey God? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.